Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. And now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Emmons. Hello, this is Dr. Kevin Emmons, your host for Walk Talk. On this bonus episode of Walk Talk, we sit down with Virginia Hanchett, a program director and senior nurse practitioner at the University of Rochester Medicine Ostomy Services at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. She has 20 years of experience in the field of wound ostomy and continence nursing and 15 years experience in medical dermatology. She has been proudly employed by the University of Rochester Medical Center for over 30 years, and for the past five years, she has focused on the well-being of ostomy patients throughout the continuum of care, with long-term management being her love. True specialty is interdisciplinary co-management of ostomy patients with complex medical and dermatological diseases, such as psoriasis, eczema, IBD, cancer, and wound management in the parastomal region. During this episode, Virginia, also Ginny, speaks to us about the content from a recent WCN Society webinar, Dermostomy, Advanced Dermatological Conditions of the Parastomal Region, which included a review of chronic and complex dermatological and medical disease states. This content, while presented on-site at WOC Next 2019, was also presented as an official WOC Next 2019 educational rebroadcast. The rebroadcasted webinar and this podcast were both supported by an educational grant from Hollister Incorporated. Thank you for joining me today, Ginny. Oh, it is my pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. No problem. And I was actually in the audience when you presented this and Right away, I was able to take some of that toolkit you provided us and put it in my clinician's toolbox to use in practice. And I'm really happy to speak with you to get a little more information about this topic. Not a problem. So your talk presented autoimmune disorders that we don't see too much. Why is it so heavily pharmacology driven? We really got a lot of feedback on this in the reviews from the lecture. And... To that, I think I would say that I have two parts as an answer. When I was originally asked by Heidi Cross to do this talk, she requested to have it heavily pharmacology-driven. And I think the reason for this is that advanced practice providers, especially in the audience, are required to get over 25 credit hours of pharmacology during their recertification period for their national certifications. And so the sign of a good society meeting in a lot of our minds, is the amount of pharmacology credits that you'll receive by attending. So that's kind of the answer to, I think, the first part of that question. But the more important part of this answer is that these autoimmune diseases, while presented before at WOC Next at other conferences, are becoming more prevalent in our society. I really wanted to give these blistering disorders kind of their own day, quote unquote, in the lecture halls and not focusing on the heavy duty drug immune suppressants would have been a disservice 
to our members in the audience. Their benefits are wonderful, but they're also as harmful as their side effects. So I think we need to push our astute group of expert WOC nurses even farther to encourage their knowledge of these heavy-hitting drugs and biologics. They're really changing the way we work to improve skin and beyond topical medications. The WOC nurse has the potential to identify potential solutions to skin disease and adherence problems, as well as to alert the providers that the patient is having side effects. So I really think that pharmacology is something that we need to embrace more. And I think that would be the answer to why so much pharmacology. We really need to embrace it. Yeah. And I know as an advanced practice provider, I appreciated it because what's the first thing people do when they come into the office or we see them inpatient? What can you give me? And I always think, well, what can we not give you first? But when I do have to, <laughs> exactly. I have to have that in my toolbox. And that's why I really appreciated what you reviewed for us. And for those nurses, WC nurses who are not advanced practice, how are they able to treat some of these autoimmune blistering diseases with over-the-counter medications possibly? There's many options for over-the-counter medications for the WOC nurse. And, you know, I'd like to say that WOC nurses are some of the most up-to-date nurses I've ever met in my career, and they're backed by the Woundostomy Continent Society, which is so rich in research and outcomes. It's important that registered nurses, though, remember that they need to be working collaboratively with either a physician or an advanced practice provider to make sure that the patient is properly diagnosed and being treated with the right medication before they start making recommendations. There's certainly over-the-counter medications that can be recommended, but they do pose some dangers as well. For example, if you're treating the skin with an over-the-counter cortisone, whether it be hydrocortisone or fluticasone, they can cause the skin to thin if used for too long of a period of time. And then if you're using these drugs and the patient really has a yeast infection or candidiasis, cortisone will make that condition worse. Antifungal powders are really commonly recommended by nurses in home care and the inpatient setting and generally all around. And I think it's because they're readily available and low risk. But, you know, we are seeing some drug resistance and even in antifungal powders and creams. So we need to be cognizant of that as well. And lastly, I think if the patient has a skin infection and you're treating them for dermatitis or yeast, then you'll get poor outcomes and the condition will worsen. So to me, it's really important that the WOC nurse works within the scope of their practice as to not bring additional harm to the patient. Absolutely. So short term, I think that probably your risk is low, but if things aren't getting better quickly, then please be collaborating. Right. And how many times do we get called up by a family member or a neighbor or do those hallway consults? What can I use? And <laughs> no, I throw some whatever on it. It's like not the best thing. So that's really that is good so advice. True. The family nurse and becomes the family medical provider and especially true in this COVID-19 crisis that we're having too. I imagine a lot of us are feeling that. And in the topic, you discuss pyoderma gangrenosoma PG. And throughout a majority of that presentation, I know you wanted to talk about some of those case studies. So instead of going over some case studies, do you want to discuss some specifics? Sure. I, the things I wanted to really talk about and the questions I got after the lecture were, what were my favorite go-to dressings? And so I'll, I guess I'll just start. 
with that one. I do really prefer the polyurethane bacteriostatic foam. You know, I'm not supposed to use brand names here. So. <laughs> with the gentian yeah, we can use brand names on here. It's fine. Blue. Oh, we can? Okay. All right. Hydrofera blue is one of my favorites because I like the way it interacts with the wound and helps to clean it up. So it's antimicrobial. And I think that there are some clinical studies showing the use of hydrofera blue with pyoderma and they have really good outcomes. So it's certainly not the treatment for pyoderma, but it's great local wound care for pyoderma because it's so absorptive. And then I really like it for that. It's got like a shiny side to it. The ostomy ring version is able to be used under the stoma wafer and it adheres and keeps it in place. I like great. So I like that. What are some first line systemic drugs of choice that you keep in your everyday toolkit when managing these? The drugs I like are a couple of different things. So the systemic drugs I like are things like doxycycline, like 100 milligrams twice daily, and a quick steroid taper if uh, I haven't been able to get progress with the injectable steroids. I usually see these patients weekly or every other weekly to monitor them really closely. And I presented a lot of information about the use of cyclosporine systemically. It takes longer to work. And when I really want to rescue a patient fast who's in a lot of pain and having a heavily draining ulcer, uh, prednisone is my first preferred drug. So we do a lot of education about the side effects of steroids, and generally the taper will last two to three weeks. I usually start at about 40 milligrams and go down about 10 milligrams every three to four days, or you can dose a patient at like one milligram per kilogram per day if they're a little bit heavier. So those are my favorites. Gotcha. And you're noticing those small doses are enough to hamper it? Yes, yes. It really gives the doxycycline time to get on board while the prednisone really halts all the inflammation and the reactivity around the site. It really helps with the pain the patient experience and any angioedema in the area. And we've noticed when these wounds start to heal that they are somewhat irregular and we get those weird overhanging borders. And some of the epithelial cells kind of wrap under and we're like, well, what do we do with these borders? Because we know pathogy is a problem. What are some of your recommendations for that? Depending on where I'm at with a patient, I will remove them. I'll debride them. And I'll tell you just quickly that usually... I'm doing a biopsy, and if I have them anesthetized, I'm going to remove the overhanging borders at the same time so that they're not in pain. That's a good idea. I try to get two birds with one stone there. And so on average, how long are you seeing these complicated wounds of varying sizes? But think about your average to heal. Should we be expecting them to heal once we start these medications on that normal kind of trajectory, or are we looking at a longer time frame? Usually, it will take two to three months to heal these once they start being treated properly. And I'd like to go back to, you know, your previous question and our comment on debriding because that can really facilitate the healing process. Everybody thinks you're not really supposed to debride a wound that has pyoderma, but the literature really shows that there's pathogy only present in about 30% of the cases. So that means that of all the patients that truly have pyoderma, only 30% will get worse with this type of intervention of like removing the overhanging borders or doing a biopsy. 
And then when you read in the literature, pathergy is most common to post-operative pyoderma cases where they have surgery unbeknownst of any autoimmune disease, and then the incisions start dehissing and or getting larger about 7 to 14 days after surgery. So we can really facilitate that healing process by taking probably, I'd say, about three to four weeks off the overall healing process through debridement. Those overhanging borders eventually melt away if you don't do anything with them and you just do local wound care. And I say melt away, I don't really mean that. I mean, it's painful for the patients and it's weeks more of wound care that they have to endure. And so we can really get them to heal a little bit faster if we remove those overhanging borders. We're taught in a lot of our woundostomy schools, pathogy, pathogy, pathogy. The information of 30% is really eye-opening. So, and of those, the 30% is pretty aggressive treatment. So that's good information for a lot of us to start thinking about, of, is this the right patient for that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, when I was going to school, and of course, given that was 20 years ago, you don't touch a pyoderma wound with a 10-foot pole, anything surgical, 100% of the time. <laughs> but right, now, absolutely. you know, we have more research to back us up and to say that only 30% of the time is it really going to give us trouble. And I have had that happen with some of my patients, and it can be detrimental. And you learn quickly if your patient is decompensating after doing any kind of debridement, as it happens. I know you wanted to tell the audience about new guidelines for diagnosing PG. And this is really good news for us out there that there's something out there to guide us. Can you tell more about these guidelines? Absolutely. After giving that lecture this past summer, I was invited to help co-author a chapter in our new WC core curriculum with Ginger's Salvadolina so that we could update pyoderma and add the blistering disorders that I spoke of at the conference. And it was during that research that I found a recently published consensus paper by Emmanuel Maverakis and et al., because there's about, I don't know, 10 or 13 authors on the article. But it was published in the JAMA Dermatology, and it was called the Diagnostic Criteria of Ulcerative Pyoderma Gangrenosum. And we all know pyoderma used to be the diagnosis of exclusion. Now there are diagnostic criteria that suggest more strongly the diagnosis of pyoderma. And the sensitivity and specificity of these diagnostic criterions were 85% sensitivity and 90% specificity for the diagnosing of PG. Wow. It goes like this. In order to diagnose pyoderma, you must have a biopsy of the ulcer edge demonstrating a neutrophilic infiltrate. So this is the one major criterion which needs to be done. It must be done on all patients. And then second to that, the patient must have four of the aid of the following criterion. And I'm just going to list them off for you because I find it interesting. Most of these are things that we see, and so it would be fairly easy, but not that easy to come up with a diagnosis. So number one is exclusion of infection. So with every patient who has an ulcer, you need to determine that there is no infection. And so as long as you're doing the biopsy as an advanced practice provider or dermatologist, you might as well send some of that for tissue culture because the tissue culture is the most accurate way to determine if an ulceration is infected. We know that. 
We can also use the Levine technique and a swab culture, but it just doesn't carry as much of the accuracy as a tissue culture. So that's number one. Number two is the presence of pathergy. So you do the biopsy or you remove the overhanging borders like we were talking about, and suddenly that ulcer is so much worse. And so that is a finding, and it can be an objective finding based on wound measurements that post-biopsy we can do. And if the wound continues to deteriorate and get larger, then we know that that is likely due to pathogen. Number three would be a history of inflammatory bowel disease or arthritis. We know that of the patients that have pyoderma, about 50% of them will have some kind of autoimmune disease and about 30% of them will have an IBD-related autoimmune disease. And then going on to the fourth potential criterion is the history of a papule, a pustule, or a vesicle ulcerating within four days of appearing. So that's a rapid decline. And then number five would be peripheral erythema with undermining borders and tenderness or pain at the ulceration site. So I think that's the one that a lot of people know that surrounding what we call a purpuricue or erythema around the borders of the ulceration and then the overhanging borders or undermining borders. And it's just incredibly painful. So this number five is really one that's probably most common to our clinicians that are in the field. They're pretty astute at picking up on that. Number six would be multiple ulcerations with at least one being the anterior lower leg because we know pyoderma most commonly affects the lower extremities and then probably the peristomal area, but it can occur on the abdomen or breast and other areas. And then here's another one that I think people are well familiar with, and that's the caribriform appearance, or they describe it as a wrinkled paper scars at the healed ulcer sites of previous pyoderma sites. So those caribriform, I call them like little pock marks in the overhanging borders that just look like little punch outs in the skin. That's caribriform. Gotcha. And yeah, your description of pock marks is spot on. Yeah. And then finally, they said, if your ulcer decreased in size within one month of initiating an immunosuppressive medication, I found this was really interesting because, in other words, you may not come up with a diagnosis of pyoderma from the get-go. But if you're treating on intuition, which sometimes we do, and it's decreasing and responding to the immune suppressants like prednisone or cyclosporine or something like that, then that can contribute to your overall diagnosis in the end. So just in summary, you had to have the biopsy showing the neutrophilic infiltrate and then four of one of those eight criterion. Great. And you talk about the biopsy as most necessary because I get this question often, is there a hint you can give for the best biopsy? Do you want a certain percentage of good surrounding tissue or do you go mostly all in the affected tissue? What works best for you with the best results? Our pathologists will tell you all the time, the best biopsy is done from the edge of the biopsy with some quote unquote normal skin, what appears to be intact, and then leading into the ulceration. So you really want to get it from the edge of the ulceration, not from within it. 
And are you using punch or are you doing excisional? I think excisional is better because you can get a broader area or a deep shave maybe with, if you're familiar with what a blue blade is, it's a kind of a surgical Gillette blade and you can really get a larger surface area of tissue. And I'm talking about, it would be good to get probably a sonometer or two and then deep into the dermis where you're going to see the superficial neutrophilic infiltrate, but then you want to rule out other things too. So you definitely want to get down into the dermis and or the fat if you can to show that it's not some of those other things like a vasculitis or something. These new guidelines are really key because it gives us an algorithm for the diagnosis confirmation and it takes some of the mystery out of pyoderma, which has always been a diagnosis of exclusion. And I think it'll reduce the number of misdiagnosed ulcerations, you know, which are guesstimated to be probably about 40% of the time we're misdiagnosing patients with pyoderma. They don't really have it. Yeah, and they're just living with these chronic painful wounds and, you know, it becomes their norm, unfortunately. Yeah. And some of these ulcers gone improperly treated. I've seen them like a couple years old. And it's just so tragic for patients. Yeah. And the impact on quality of life, right? Of having a wound over a year. When you walk, it hurts. When you lay down, it hurts. Just the idea of having a draining ulceration, peristomal lesions, painful every time you change. And so a guideline is good. As healthcare providers, we love a guideline to start out. It's wonderful because you remember the older that these wounds get, then they're putting themselves at risk for developing a skin cancer due to chronic inflammation, like a squamous cell cancer of kinds. So, so the guidelines are good. They'll really be helpful for nurses to work more collaboratively with their dermatology providers and fast track their patients to systemic therapy. And, and it'll really help with future clinical trials, getting patients enrolled in future studies. It'll be a little more rigorous of a workup, but it will really define pyoderma gangrenosum potential patients for clinical trials. And of those five major disease processes that you presented, what are you finding is the most exciting? And when you find it in the clinical setting, you're like, ah, I caught this and it's been kind of going unnoticed. What's new in the area that you're thinking is happening? Well, just to remind our listeners that I spoke on pemphigus and bullous pemphigoid and haley haley psoriasis and pyoderma. My favorite of those and the most exciting and the most preventable really is psoriasis. I think it's exciting because there are so many systemic drugs now and our treatments are getting so much better. The choices are really almost unlimited at this point with new drugs coming out all the time. And I think it's the most preventable because with the use of adhesive removers and all of our new products that have no tape on them, at least with ostomy patients, that they hold the moisture better and patients don't have as many findings of psoriasis or that kebnerization that we talk about from the mechanical stripping where psoriasis heads over to IL-2 to set up camp because <laughs> we're taking our wafer off all the time. And I think we just have so many more options for our patients and less flare-ups. I really favor psoriasis as being the most exciting and preventable of all those. And the most common. 
Oh, definitely. And I will say that after your lecture, I saw my first Haley Haley, and I was like, I know what this is. <laughs> it must have been by chance. So we did our workup, and the patient was being treated for a fungal infection for God knows how long, and it really just needed slight topical anti-inflammatories and immunosuppression, and it went away. And I was like, oh, thank God I saw your presentation because this poor person had- <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Gone <laughs> See, it was all so worth many it places. just for that. Yes. It makes me feel so good when I can implement these things. I'm like, oh, it was totally worth every penny. It was great. So you really summarized nicely some information for us. And I know as clinicians, we have to be vigilant and just really thinking about what are these possibilities. Is there anything you want to end with as a word of advice for any of our WSC nurses when looking at these rare or kind of differential between things? What is the advice? I think the most overwhelming comment I kept hearing after the lecture was, wow, I'll never look at tissue as hypergranulation tissue the same again. It can be something else. And that if it's not going away with our traditional remedies of adjusting the appliances and making sure there's no infection, that, you know, it could be something autoimmune. So my advice to my colleagues is really just if it's not getting better in your traditional two to four weeks as a benchmark, then look outside the box and see what else is going on. Inspect their meds and review their diagnoses. And sometimes your patients make it a little difficult for you because they won't tell you that they, oh, their dentist did a biopsy of their gums and found out that they have pemphigus. It's just not something that people really talk about. <laughs> but if you oh, look I forgot at to the mention gums, IBD. <laughs> yeah. But if you look at those gums in your patients and you see really beefy red receding gums, similar to the Crohn's patient, you might ask a couple of questions. And just, I think my parting advice is just if it's not getting better relatively quickly, then keep looking. Because we have good science that takes us through our basics. And if it's not working, then it's got to be something else. So, And really work with your Find a good dermatologist to pair up with and strike up a relationship where you can possibly go and observe and learn and develop a partnership of collaboration with a practice down the street or in your university because you can really help each other in those ways. And then I also got one other question from a lot of advanced practice nurses. They're like, where do we go to get the training to do these things? And if you can, again, pair up with your local dermatologist, they truthfully don't really want to take care of ostomy patients for whatever reason, or it's not rocket science, but anybody who's not familiar with ostomy care or wound care is happy to have you as a WOC nurse as a partner. And you can build relationships, learn techniques as an advanced practice provider. You can learn how to do those intradermal steroid injections and be more comfortable with prescribing prednisone and the anti-inflammatory antibiotics, the tetracycline class and such. So you can really nurture professional learning and expertise if you just ask for a little help. That's good advice. And as usual, the information you provided is going to be helpful to so many people. And I enjoyed talking with you today and I appreciate all your time. It is my pleasure. And thank you for the invitation. It's always a great experience and 
This has been every bit of that. I really appreciate it. Excellent. And I look forward to Thank your you, chapter, Kevin. as I'm sure a lot of our people will. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's wocn.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. Walk Talk.